Welcome to episode 7 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Bongani Kona, and in this episode we ask how the global Swahili worlds might reframe our thinking of connections across waters. We ponder with Kenyan novelist Yvonne Adiambo Owol on the Swahili name for the Western Indian Ocean and the importance of telling unvoiced stories. The contemporary narrative of especially African maritimity has guaranteed that the African oceanic imagination has been completely amputated. Halima Ali reads the work of Haji Gora Haji, a Zanzibari poet and seafarer whose biography is enfolded in the waves of the ocean. Banyim safara wetu ni wamadau matatu tukitokea tumbatu kwa vyombo kuelekea. For our journey, a fleet of three dows, departing from Tumbatu, we left in array. We travelled to the docks in Cape Town, South Africa, with visual artist Migna Singh, who draws us into the invisible worlds of mobile populations, immersed in new forms of economic servitude at sea. We used to always be very intrigued by the container ships coming and going, and you know, always wonder what's inside these containers, and wonder about you know, the people working inside the port and their stories. I mean, what is their connection to the movement of capital in these containers? And I was just interested in going inside the port. The first voice you will hear from today is that of Yvonne Adiambo. In this conversation, she laments the neglect of the African oceanic imaginary and argues that the Swahili seas have shaped lives for generations, yet the wealth and depth of this history is often neglected. The lie that was being put out was that the African relationship with the ocean, if there was a relationship, was that of cargo on somebody else's boat or as uh, artisanal fishermen kind of frolicking on the shore. And that, that informed uh, um, what people call colonial, but I call it the age of atrocities, uh, pretensions of, of agency to everybody else but to the African person. So in the process of that, that meant writing over even the names of the sea, that uh, the names of things that uh, our cultures and peoples already had. Writing over the long relationships with other nations that um, the oceanic uh, cultures had already established. Laying claim to the artifacts of this maritime imagination, the boats, uh, the, the emblems, the tools of navigation, and attributing even the language, even the culture of the Swahili, uh, to anybody else but the African being. So, uh, and the fact that our post-colonial governments have uh, participated in this terrible, terrible amputation by also turning their backs to the sea, I think it's, it, we've committed a grave injustice both to history and to our ancestors, but also to ourselves. When I was doing part of the research, especially in, uh, in Zanzibar, started to ask questions about, but, but what do you call the sea? And the preferred names were things like Bahari or Bahari Hindi, but that's a very contemporary um, a variation. But I think the most moving moment for me was asking one of the older um, uh, boatmen, or one of my interlocutors, but I said, what is the older name of the sea? And this man, he's the one who told me Bahari, but I said, not Bahari. 
And then he said, Ziwaku, which means uh, the deep waters. I said, no, but that doesn't sound right. If everything else has a name, what is the name? I remember him just sitting down, sitting down in silence. We had this long silence. And, 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 and tears were in his eyes. I remember him turning to me and looking startled as if completely surprised. He said, but who are these people who have even forgotten the names of their seas? And, and that struck me, that was one of those moments that maybe informed me that this, this story quest, this is what this story quest was about. Um, and it was one of those moments where I could have gone in further and, and gotten completely lost in the research process of this. But it's because it is fascinating, the things that have emerged. Uh, but needless to say, there are about uh, 16 different names for the ocean that we've come to call Indian. Uh, but which had a whole lot of other names before it. Yvonne speaks of Haji Korahaji as an important figure in her life. She writes, his texts are not abstractions. They come from the sedimentation of history, merging with his 80 years of living. The materiality of his words become crucial resources in figuring out the Swahili ocean imaginary in a space where the primary repository of knowledge and archiving remains the human body and memories. Yvonne recalls their first encounter and the lasting influence it would have. My very first meeting uh, with Haji Garao Haji was when I had uh, taken up my assignment as executive director of the Zanzibar Film Festival. And this uh, beautiful man, absolutely beautiful with his hat and his, he had this basket, you know, this kind of reed basket. Walks in like a poet and a scholar and a, a rogue, uh, and walks in to introduce himself with this exquisite Kiswahili that I had never heard before. It was Kitumbatu. And he had this joyful, joyful kind of welcoming, and immediately called me his daughter, right? And he had all these ideas about what was going to happen, uh, what, what the festival would be and do. Uh, but more importantly, he became one of the pillars and uh, voices of both of the ocean and of the environment of the island for me. Um, introduced me to his poetry. Uh, I also learned from others that he was regarded as a kind of a gadfly to the Tanzanian government. Poet laureate because his words are exquisite. But also somebody explained, he says, when you'd, you'd leave after hearing Hajigora poetry, and then understand you had just been insulted. <laughs> so the government didn't know what to do with him. Nobody did. But he was, uh, that's when I first met him. And he just became a part of my life, almost like a, a beloved uncle, uh, but also a mentor in so many ways. Half the time, we did not understand one another. Um, he insisted on, the, on, 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 on using Kitumbatu. Then later on, when I leave Zanzibar, a lot of things then make sense when one leaves. And then, then this story, and I realized I needed him again, because if anybody would know the, uh, the name, the original name, the names of the ocean, he would, and his poetry would. At that time, I was looking for the thing called poem maps, the navigational poetry, the idea that uh, uh, some, po some navigation of, of, of our waters, part of, part of our own African imagination of, of the waters, some maps were turned into poetry, which were recited in order to find, for you know, by sailors in order to find their their particular route, which Hajigora affirmed, of course, and he was the one who 
and you'll find I include it in the, in the in the novel. He said he can he could recite his way from Tumbatu to Yemen just by play of words, by play of words that were actually maps. So he was my main interlocutor when I was doing this thesis and doing this research. Um, there was so so much, and I think my only regret is that I had, you know hadn't travelled with a proper, you know, camera crew and a recording team. Uh, just to just to archive, just to draw on uh, all that he kept and all that he knew. Haji Gora Haji, um, how do you say it? He he disappeared into the memories of the past and of the sea. Uh, his his body is still with us, uh, but his mind and spirit are uh, wandering and traveling still. Um, I'm so glad that I got him when I did. Halima Ali reads one of Haji Kora Haji's poems. Ninaazam tiriri kuliandika shairi la jahazi mashuhuri nilowahi safiria. I start this flow this narrative about a renowned jahazi abroad which I traveled. Katika wangu ujana ikawa sivui tena nikahisi vyema sana bora niwe baharia. In my youth I gave up fishing. I thought it was better to become a sailor. Jahazi hilo naronga liliokuwa ya Tanga, Dar es Salaam na Tanga ndiko likisafiria. That jahazi was from Tanga, its route was Dar es Salaam to Tanga. Ndani yake hilo kundi katika hicho kipindi nilikuwa ni mahindi vizuri na zingatia. Within the crew in that season I was an apprentice, the better to remember. Tanga kwa wakati huo tukizipakia mbao na kuzipeleka kwao mwenyewe kukabivia. We headed out to Tanga to collect timber to transport it to those who had commissioned this trip. Huko tukizifikisha Dar es Salama hushusha na chombo kukizungusha nyingine kwenda pakia. We reached our destination, disembarked in Dar es Salaam, then we turned the vessel around with other freight on board. Hiyo misafara yetu kitimia mitatu hurudi unguja kwetu mishahara hupokea. These journeys were in threes before we could return to our unguja to receive our salaries. Baada husisha hayo yalokuwa tutendayo kuna machache ambayo mwishoni yatafatia. These were the things we did but there are others that remained unstated. Kwa vile Zanzibar imo kati ya bahari wengi wetu kusafiri na mdipo tukazoea because Zanzibar is embedded in the sea most of us travel as a matter of course sababu kwa zama zile tuliozaliwa kale wengi hatukusoma shule kazi tukikamatia in that age the time of our birth we did not go to school we started work early Uvivu na ukulima na malodi kututuma ikawa ndizo hekima za uchumi kupatia fishing and farming and at the back of the lordly those were the options to gain wealth baada ya nilioronga na hapa nilipogonga shahiri hili kufunga muda umefikilia now that i have reached this place that i have hit it is time to close this poem Isipokuwa na nena kama lilokosekana iwe samahani sana kwani sio kukusudia 
If my words have caused any offence, I ask forgiveness, for that is unintended. Halima Ali will read again from Haji Gora Haji at the end of this episode. Ayana, the protagonist of Yvonne's most recent novel, Dragonfly Sea, was inspired by the story of Mamaka Sharifu, a young woman from Pate Island who in 2005 was given a scholarship to study in China based on DNA tests that indicated she was a distant descendant of Chinese mariners who traveled to the Swahili coast more than 600 years ago. Yvonne reads to us from her novel Dragonfly Sea, a coming-of-age tale set on the island of Pate, off the coast of Kenya. To cross the vast ocean to their south, water-chasing dragonflies with four bears in northern India had hitched a ride on a sedate in-between-seasons morning wind, one of the monsoons in Troits, the Matlai. One day in 1992, four generations later, under dark purplish blue clouds, this fleeting being settled on the mangrove-fringed southwest coast of a little girl's island. The matlai conspired with a shimmering full moon to charge the island, its fishermen, prophets, traders, seamen, sea women, healers, shipbuilders, dreamers, tailors, madmen, teachers, mothers and fathers with a fretfulness that mirrored the slow-turning, slow-churning turquoise sea. Dusk stalked the Lamu archipelago's largest and sullenest island, trudging from Siu on the north coast, appending Kizingitini's fishing fleets before swooping southwest to brood over a packed town that was already mouldering in the malaise of unrequited yearnings. Bruised by endless deeds of guile, siege, war and seduction, like the island that contained it, Patted town marked melancholic time. A leaden sky poured dull red light over a crowd of petulant ghosts, dormant feuds, forfeited glories, invisible roads, and congealing millennia old conspiracies. Weaker light leached into ancient crevices, tombs, and ruins, and signaled to a people who were willing to cohabit with tragedy, trusting that time transformed even cataclysms into echoes. Deep inside Pate, a cock crowed, and from the depths of space, a summons, the azan crescendoed. Sea winds tugged at a little girl's lemon-green headscarf, revealing dense black curly hair that blew into her eyes. From within her mangrove hideout, the scrawny seven-year-old, wearing an oversized floral dress that she was supposed to grow into, watched dense storm clouds hobble inland. She decided that these were a monster's footsteps a monster whose strides left streaks of pink light on the sky. Sea water lapped at her knees and her bare feet sank into the black sand as she clutched another scrawny being, a purring, dirty white kitten. She was betting that the storm, her monster, would reach land before a passenger-laden dhow now muddling its way towards the cracked wharf to the right of her. She held her breath. Homecomers, she called all passengers. Wajio. The child could rely on such homecomers to be jolted like marionettes whenever there was a hint of rain. She giggled in anticipation as the mid-sized da with Biki Dude painted in flaking yellow eased into the creek. Yvonne speaks to us about the visit to the Congo River that sparked the writing of the novel and of the deep historical connections between China and Africa. 
I think the, the first part is that uh, my second born sister, Vivian, had always said, Vaughn, one day, please tell them, because I was telling them all the stories of Zanzibar uh, uh, when I was there. And, and he, she said, please, one day, write, write that book, write it. And she asked me that twice, and I kind of left it. And it's one of those things that kind of linger in the back of one's mind. But strangely enough, um, dust was gone. I'd actually started a different book, um, the, the one I'm working on now called The Copy Mistress. I was just thinking around it. But at that time, Binyavanga had uh, sent me off to uh, the DRC to do a different project. Uh, but I remember standing in front of the Congo River. Uh, it, it's awesome. It's awesome. Strangely enough, the story that sparked Dragonfly Sea, the thing that sparked it was the Congo River. So, uh, you know, with a group of new friends, and then there was this kind of commotion and eavesdropping. I said, but what's going on there? And uh, my guy told me, look, um, what's happened just now is that the boatman of the, the steamboat captain, the last steamboat captain of the, that takes the boats from Matadi has, has just retired. And I wondered what's so special about that. And then the story of the Matadi people, uh, historically, uh, they were the people who were known, renowned for taking the boats from the Congo to the Atlantic. At the time when European explorers were saying the Congo was unnavigable, these guys would and could. Um, I, I found some of the old anthropological texts, unfortunately in French, but, but because my French is not very good. The implication is that the narrative of these so-called anthropologists was that uh, these people were steeped in superstition and were singing and dancing to their gods in order to move the boats. <laughs> but kind of thinking, okay, just a minute. But it was that then that took me back to the uh, Indian Ocean. I'd gone out with a group of friends. We were caught up in the doldrums. Everything was still. I remember our Nahoda, the boat captain, after, you know, it's kind of moving from, from site to site. And then he started to recite something. At that time, I thought it was uh, prayer. And then I understand, ah, it was in this moment that the both the Matadi and the, the, what the boatman was doing in the ocean came together. I think, it, oh, it's like satellite navigation. You correlate your places using the memory of maps that have been instilled in your, you know, it was, at that time it was speculation. But when I go back to ask questions, I find that it's actually, it's real. There is a, the guiles, the guiles, part of the part of the training in, in, involves the training of, of roots. You you memorize through incredibly lyrical poetry. What sounds like poetry to the rest of us? So yeah, then I, I started looking around, saying, but what has been written around this? Very 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 little. And the one person who had a whole archive of that, the late Sheikh Nabahan, um, also from Pate. Again, it's part of the grief, the terrible grief. So I almost feel like, oh, you know, I started this kind of five years too late because he would die the following year, just uh, before we made our appointment. But he had a whole, when we first had the conversation, he said he had a whole list. He says, of course, absolutely, as if it was a very, uh, you know, it's not even a question. It's, there's plenty, plenty exists. I also discovered that there, is a, uh, there was a Frenchman, I never met him, I think he was attached to UNESCO, who had been collecting some of this poetry. And um, I never followed up on this, but the, he had been told that he, his collection of poetry, which, which introduced another element, it was Swahili, but written in Devnagari, in Sanskrit. The idea of Swahili carrying itself through the different forms, like, um, so it, was, it wasn't just Arabic that Swahili wrote itself through, but through, it, but it also used the Devnagari script, the, the Sanskrit. 
which which opens up all sorts of possibilities you understand at connections doesn't it at that time when all these questions start rushing at you like this uh, you have to follow the story you have to follow the it, it won't let you go i, I said dreaming about it um but again then a lot of things come together then for example um i remember getting so sometimes when i i do uh, my intensive teaching i always ask the class what pisses you off and at that moment was what was pissing me off at that moment was the uh, the bombardment of the narrative of what china's return to africa means there was not a single african or person of china putting this narrative forward it was always all done by the west and their proxies among us and it 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 was a single type of story it was a single story uh, the sky is falling on helpless africa's head uh, china has come they're the new colonizers china is evil um you know this is china is doing this for themselves even if they even if there may be a, an an iota of truth within that i was mostly interested in what is our african perspective what does africa say what is africa's position what is africa's opinion and 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 so when i asked haji gorahaji and this was also very important when i asked haji gorahaji you know you know china's coming in and what do you think of that he he had this look of and so and and your point is i said but you know uh, the you know china at that time by the way I, let me let me clarify this i was not thinking of china's presence in africa as a return then the narrative was that it was a new invasion so i was asking that and, and let me be blunt about this it, it's stupidity it's part of the imbibed stupidity because when i was in zanzibar as well uh, the one of the the restaurant there there are two restaurants in zanzibar that are owned by zanzibaris of chinese origin one of them is a fourth generation zanzibari the other is a fifth generation zanzibari the presence of history is there blatantly in front of my eyes i'm i'm not even talking about the ceramics that were in people's houses the china that are kind of you know uh, from the 14th and 13th and 15th centuries that still that are usually passed down from mother to daughter so the evidence of history that one enters into and yet does not see neither sees nor hears right so yeah and and Chai Ajigora's attitude is uh, and and your point is then i said but you know but you know people are worried and he's he's he said people have come people have gone and people will come again what's new that was a liberating moment for me that was so liberating what's new the whole thing then of once you start the research you find the story of muamaka sharifu and i realized that is that was a very significant turning point in our relationship with china africa's relationship with china um the the young girl who uses her bloodline who because of her bloodline affirms a story that the pat islanders have told themselves for centuries which historians and anthropo- anthropologists willfully ignored right when you go to pate you find that absolutely when you go to pate island there's no big deal about the blend of peoples and they've lived it and it is part of their daily conversation as if it is nothing new and yet historians anthropologists and others and geographers end up in that place and do not hear i think what also struck me was also despite this uh, momaka the evidence and pate island itself for example historians and uh, especially western journalists insist that all of this is speculation right so i wanted to know what what are what are we what are our own people saying and then that gets simplifies the story in that 
I was now more in, I became interested in the personal and intimate histories. It's it's a story of the marginal people, right? Of of ordinary. So it becomes rather than this great geopolitical issue. I was interested in what does this geopolitics do to the small ordinary person who's caught up in the push and pull of all these forces. Uh, and uh, yeah, so and in the and and what happens in the end is just the writing of it. So Mwamaka inspires the story Ayana herself. It's not a Mwamaka story. It's, she, it's just her life story, her life elements um, in, inspire and inform this. You know, the story of this little girl. Pate Island itself is you enter the island and at every single point there's a there's a source of inspiration and, and narrative. So uh, my struggle became leaving things out, frankly. Yeah. To end our conversation, Yvonne reads to us again from Dragonfly Sea. So in this part, Ayana really, really wants to learn how to deep water fish, and that is done at night. Um, so her, the father she has adopted is declining and, and has been trying to resist. Um, uh, please, right? Uh, watching ships make their ways to various harbors, Muhitin told Ayana, a boat is a bridge. Ayana considered this for days. But though she started to insist, Muhitin would not show her how to hunt deep water fish with night lanterns. If your mother heard, she never know. Not yet, Abira, she sulked. He shrugged. Fundimedi will show me, she threatened. No, he won't, countered Muhitin. Ayana knew he was right. Can you make a boat? No. Fundimedi can. Go to Fundimedi then. Then, No, she yelled. But later that afternoon, with Ayana's kitten following them, they wandered over to the part of the island where the vestiges of its shipbuilding memory still lingered. In the decrepitude caused by time and fate lurked Fundi Almazi Medi's cove and the wood scent of boats built and boats to be built from templates resting in old memories. Hammer on wood echoes bounced in the air. Mangrove poles lay scattered on the ground, scorched in preparation for their destiny. A radio announcer offered the tide reports. Ayana saw a solitary man. She dashed forward toward Fundimedi as he worked on the hollowed prow of a mutungri, pouring into it coconut oil followed by fire. Muhidin caught up with her. Before he could greet the craftsman, Ayana announced, a boat is a bridge. She watched the flames scorch the prow. Why fire? She leaned over. Medi tried to flap her away. Muhidin lifted Ayana into the remains of a nearby sand-stranded barnacle, formerly on seagoing boat. The kitten jumped into the boat with her. From inside the vessel, Ayana squawked to Medi. Why oil? Why fire? Fundi Medi sighed. Why oil? Why fire? Ayana sang. Muhidin then told Mehdi as he settled himself on a stump. Greetings, brother. Forgive this imposition. I have no problem extending my torment to you. Now, she'll hound you. She'll interrogate you. If you have an answer, deliver it to her, lest you babble out deeper secrets in desperate surrender. Mehdi glared at Muhidin. Muhidin shrugged. Mehdi turned to look at Ayana, who was resting on her belly to dangle off the edges of the jettisoned boat. She then lifted her hands as if she were about to soar and intoned, Why fire? Why oil? He returned to his firework with the smallest of smiles, sitting at the edge of his mouth. Almazi Medi started. So listen, 
when this boat meets fire on water, one day it will know what to do. Stillness, Ayana's voice shrill with awe. I've seen you drown boats many, many, many times. Yet spied on Medi as he sees on boats by submerging them in the sea, keeping them under water for weeks. Ayana continued, and so, and so, when the boat, when they drown, and afterwards when the water comes inside, she shook her head. Even them now they don't drown, isn't it? Maddie's exasperated breath came through his hairy nostrils. With an audible harumphing, he turned to Muhyiddin, eyes frantic. Muhyiddin turned to face the sea and closed his eyes. He clumped his mouth shut to stop himself from cackling as Ayana swung her boat to and fro on her boat, asking, You build a jahazi? No, Mehdi grunted after a minute. Mikna Singh is a visual artist and scholar from New Delhi, currently residing in Cape Town. In this conversation, she speaks to us about the roots of Arrested Motion, Rusting Diamond, and Container, three projects that interrogate the hidden processes of globalization, coloniality, and capital at sea. I've always been interested in the theme of migration, the movement of people, movement of things and oceanic mobilities. So when I first moved to Cape Town, I was very intrigued by the port. I used to live in an area called Sea Point and you could actually see the port at a distance. Um, I could see from my house and I used to always be very intrigued by the container ships coming and going. And you always wonder what's inside these containers and like it's also invisible and wonder about you know the people working inside inside the port and their stories I mean what is their connection to the movement of capital in these containers and I was just interested in going inside the port and because I was doing a PhD I did use that to get permission to access the port it took me about one year once I got permission to access the port, this new world opened up. It was amazing. Um, in the beginning, being a, a filmmaker, visual artist, I spent lots of time just going off in tugboats, you know, pulling in container ships. Um, visually, it was all very exciting, very beautiful. And then, you know, after a few months, I, I sat to review this footage and it all looked very beautiful, but there was no story. And what was missing was, was, was the story. And I remember speaking to my PhD supervisor and he said, this is great, but what's the story, you know? And I remember having filmed this oil rig being pulled in. It's a beautiful sight. And, and walking back with my camera and I heard these men speaking in Hindi. And that basically was the start of what became Arrested Motion later. Because I did go and introduce myself. I spoke in Hindi. I, I from Delhi, so I used to speak Hindi. There were nine Indian seafarers um, who had been, not the seafarers, but the ship had been arrested indefinitely. Uh, they were on their way to Dubai from Nigeria. And when they came to Cape Town, um, the authorities 
arrested them, arrested the ship, the vessel. The guys decided not to fly back home, even though they could, because they wouldn't have got paid. So they decided to remain in the vessel till it would move again. And that took about a year, a little less than a year, for them to move out of Cape Town. Arrested motion um, is one of my pieces of research and work, which is way close to my heart. This was, I think, the first time in my sort of grown-up adult life that I actually felt homesick. And I think it, it might have to do with the fact that, you know, I was going in having conversations in Hindi. The, um, every time I, I, I would go to visit or, or, or meet these guys or sort of observe them in, in a way, you know, that the chef um, would make a special meal that night and you know, talk about home. Um, it wasn't a certain kind of pathos around them being stuck, but it was just, um, you know, talking about a space which is familiar to all of us. And then for them, it was about when are we going to get back home? We don't know. We sort of stuck here indefinitely. Mixed with the drama and excitement of like the news coming and, you know, the sheriff said this and maybe we can move tomorrow, but the company doesn't want to pay this. So their story basically, to make it very simple, was that their company was located in Dubai. It was registered in Panama and there was a company in Singapore that had loaned them money, but they, their company had defaulted. And they were, they had gone to Nigeria um, and they were coming back to work in the oil fields and, and they got arrested in Cape Town. And the workers from India, and then they're stuck here. In the beginning, I was, I was really struggling. You know, I was thinking about how do I frame this experience? Because it could have gone in so many different ways. But I remember this one time I was in the ship on the, on the deck. I'm talking to the captain of the ship and then I looked down and there were three of these guys and they were just pacing up and down. And, you know, they, they weren't bound to the ship. They could have gone out into the city. They could have stepped out of the ship. But they decided to remain and just like pacing up and down, pacing up and down. And, and I, you know, clicked and I said, this is about waiting. I've been really working hard to find what, what is what is that underlying theme here, and then it was about waiting, and then it's like, wh what does it mean? Like, what does it do emotionally and physically to someone who doesn't know when they're going to move again? And then from then on, every time you know I had my camera and I was observing, this was the lens through which I was observing these guys. One of them said, but you know. We are so used to waiting, like back home, you know, people are waiting at the railway station and the platforms, they get their luggage, they sleep overnight on the floor. Sometimes the train is 24 hours late, 48 hours, but you know, we Indians are so used to it. It also then became very interesting that why is a population, subaltern population, so used to and accepting of waiting? You know, you, you, you go to a government office or the traffic office and you have to wait. You tell people back home that, I don't know, I might come back in one hour, two hours, three hours, who knows. Um, and then I found a very interesting book, which is about Craig Jeffrey, an anthropologist who had spent quite a bit of time in, in North India and in Uttar Pradesh. And he'd observed these guys who would go on their motorcycle, these young guys, and just 
like hang out, you know, just every evening they would just gather and, and then spend time. Um, and they were called time pass men because a very common thing for people to say is when you ask someone, what are you doing? They'd say, I'm passing time. It's, it's, I've said it myself, you know, uh, don't say I'm killing time or something. He said, I'm passing time. And so he labeled them time pass men, which, you know, which became quite interesting. And I, I could relate that to this context. And, and then writing about this, you know, I wrote about the politics of waiting. Then how all this materialized visually and in an immersive way was I created this installation, um, which had three big screens and then in the middle was this central sculptural piece which had suspended porthole windows. The portholes were in this round structure and the audience would enter this courtyard space where the installation was first installed and they could walk around these portholes, there were nine of them, and they were at eye level. And you could look inside the porthole and then it was almost like you're looking inside the cabins of these men. And what was, what I did was, um, I, I sculpted ice windows which were lodged into these portholes and, and those were trans, translucent. And then I projected these images. So you actually didn't know if it was ice or not. And then it was just slowly dripping and the water was melting. And so they became like these moving, melting images. Um, and if one was interested enough to stay for the duration of three to four hours, it would be completely melted. And you would still see the projection because the, the window is there, but then you'd have a, you know, quite a bit of water collected at the bottom of the screen. And, and so that was, that was the immersive installation, the melting ice, the melting screens, um, sort of looking into the lives of these men. And then outside was, the life of the, the port, because these guys were stuck, but then container ships were still coming in and out, you know, labels were being printed, things were being exported and imported. So that's on the outside. And, and you get a real sense of being stuck while things are moving outside. By the time they actually left, I mean, there was a lot of like fake news we leaving tomorrow. Um, it was, it was almost a year. And then I'm friends with some of the guys on Facebook and they had my number. And then they stopped in Durban to refuel. And then because they hadn't moved in so long, there was a fault with the engine and they got stuck for another three months. Um, yeah, so eventually, I think it was about 14, 15 months of being in South Africa. And then they moved again. So... I had seen Lady San Lorenzo while I was filming uh, for Arrested Motion. It was the most intriguing site, almost inviting me in. And um, Morgan was the caretaker of Lady San Lorenzo. And I first met him, he was standing on the deck of the ship. And I, I asked him you know, if I could come in and have a look. He wasn't very sure. But um, he he did let me come inside because there was a security guard and they said, you know, she's been filming and researching, so it's fine. She's sort of harmless, not a journalist. And so we went in, but it was, and the whole setting was <laughs> precarious. We actually had to put 
plywood so that I wouldn't fall through the holes on the deck of the ship. So we had to like walk very carefully and then we went inside. And what he, you know, not on that first meeting, but over a period of time, the next five, six meetings, told me about how um, there were a few other brothers from Ghana who were taking shelter inside the ship. And he, he let them stay because, you know, they were his brothers and they didn't have a place to stay or pay rent. And also, they felt safer inside, inside the port. And so what was funny for me when, when he told me about the state of the ship was that, um, they had to pump out water every day because there were holes at the bottom of the ship and the water would keep seeping in. Um, but there were some, there were a few times when he would go back home and the other guys who were staying inside the ship would call him and say that, look, you know, the water is coming in and, and, um, we can't pump it out with the pump or with the kettles or buckets they used to use. We have to call in divers. And so he would call the agent, Edwin, who would then call divers and they would have to come and patch the holes from beneath the ship. So I think what was interesting was, you know, these guys were not as nervous or scared of the immigration police coming in and asking them for papers. And they were more nervous about, you know, the, the ship literally sinking with, with water coming in. Um, especially at night, if they were sleeping, they wouldn't know. So um, that was very interesting for me. The literal precariousness of the situation of living in a sinking ship. Third project for the for the PhD um, was based on the remains of a slave ship that were found off Clifton Beach uh, about five years ago. Of the ship called São José Paquete de Africa, which um, was a Portuguese slave ship, had left Lisbon and was at Ilha de Mozambique in north of Mozambique, where they had um, basically collected you know, forcefully taken enslaved men and women and it was on its way to north of Brazil. And when they had stopped at Cape Town, um, the ship sank. And about 212 uh, of the enslaved people drowned because their um, hands and feet were in, in shackles. And so they could, they saved half of them, but half of them drowned. And so that's the starting point of this, this project. And, and so the, the visual component is very different than what I've done for the previous two, which have been video installations. Um, this one has taken the form of a virtual reality installation art experience. And I'm co-directing it with, with Simon Woods, who's a documentary filmmaker. And this, I think we, we thought a lot about how do we look at historical slavery. You know, when looking at historical slavery, we said, well, you know, it, it, it's, where there's modern day slavery, it hasn't ended. In fact, it's probably even become worse. And even looking at Cape Town as a city, you know, how do you reflect on slavery? So we said, why don't we take audience on a, 
strange David Lynchian-like time capsule in virtual reality in a container um, where it goes from historical slavery and ends up in modern-day slavery. But the starting point of this experience is uh, the audience is going to enter a, a container and once they're in the container, they find themselves on Clifton Beach and, you know, there's a white family and the two children and they're playing when they watch these enslaved people emerging from the ocean and they pull a container out of the ocean. And then in that container starts your journey in a sugarcane plantation to a colonial household, to a massage parlor, to a sex shop in Bangladesh, and then ends with this woman drowning in a container. We haven't finished it yet. Um, we hope to finish it before the end of this year. So that piece is called Container and it's reflecting on um, the meeting of the dead and living, which is the Sao Jose Pakiti Africa case study. The ocean cannot speak, Meghna writes, but has ways in which it reminds us of those who were chained, those who drowned, those immersed in new forms of economic servitude and those made invisible. We end today's episode with another of Haji Korahaji's poems, read by Halima Ali. Ukichungua bahari, ina mengi ya losiri, hata ukiwa hodari. Bahari ina mawimbi, kadhalika na vitimbi, kama sirangi na vumbi. Mengi ya soidadika, pindi ukisadifika, lazima hutetemeka. Ikiwa umochomboni, kaa utuliendani, ukitizama majini. Bahari usichungue, omba mola akuvue. Be wary before the ocean, it remains cryptic, however intrepid you are. The sea contains waves, other mysteries and riddles, where it is not for the colour and dust, unaccountable things there are. When it approaches, you must tremble. When you are in the vessel, concentrate on your confines, for should you glimpse the jinns. Don't drop too deeply into the sea, beseech God's help. Kusafiri huafiki, kuona, ukidiriki. Hofu itakumiliki. Milele hayaundoki, vilo havithihiriki, ingekuwa hakuendeki. Na makubwa masamaki, uonapo, Ujishiki na mno kutaharuki. Jifanye hubaiki, we, we lanje hutaki. Hapa na hapo hufiki. Utajitia wahaka, ufike unapotoka. It seduces you into travel when you get comfortable, be careful. Ceaseless waves, not evident to untrained eyes. You would not leave and giant fish too great to understand with a sense of urgency. Fake fearlessness, ignore what's beyond your ken. There and then your journey ends. You will worry to reach your destination. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we trace the afterlives of the trans-Saharan trade routes of the 8th century. You'll hear from writers Omar Barada and Mushud Jimba and Moroccan musician Amino Beliamani. 
The Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Teop and Bongani Corner and is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates. <laughs>